And so what we need to concentrate on is learning the past in a factual way, making sure you understand accurate American history and not the sort of glamorized, um, wrapped in red, white, and blue kind of history that often gets presented, not just through some not great history classes, but pop culture, movies. What messages are we getting through those other ways, you know, pundits, the news? Welcome to Among Neighbors, a podcast about race, power, and privilege. My name's Andy Conti. I'm the director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Hi, Barbara Johnson. I am the Senior Director of Race and Gender Equity at YWCA Greater Pittsburgh. So Barbara, today we're talking about this topic that I I think hits pretty close to home for you, this idea of President Trump's uh, executive order in which he ruled out any kind of racial bias training for the federal government, its contractors, and uh, any of its grantees, which includes places like uh, universities and other nonprofits that get federal funding, that they're not allowed to do any kind of anti-bias training based on gender and race. And th- that's essentially like, that would be like somebody telling me, or the president saying, you know, we nobody's allowed to read the newspaper. Nobody's allowed to see the news. How are you taking this? What does it mean to you? Exactly. So the first thing I thought about was, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be fired because what am I going to (laughs) do? It's pretty much a good component of my work. Um, And so, you know, the first thing that I did was um, talk to my boss and, you know, did some digging deeper into like what the executive order really said. And you're definitely right, Andy, it's primarily focused on uh, federal tax dollars. But in fact, it does have ripple effects to the work that we do around racial justice, because, you know, oftentimes we might have a corporation or an an organization or somebody who wants to um, get some racial justice education amongst their staff or even within their, um, you know, living community um, uh, neighborhood. Um, And if they've gotten federal funds, like a grant to do something, they can't include um, racial justice training now. So I've heard of a couple people who um, already got a grant and it was already in there because they contracted somebody and now they're struggling with like, can they do it or can they not do it? Because it was approved before the executive order hit. So um, so we at the YWCA, whose mission is to eliminate racism and who works you know, heavily in the racial justice education space, have been really concerned about how this might impact us moving forward. Yeah, we're going to get into the details today of the executive order and exactly what it says. And, and not only what it says, but what it means, because the, in some cases, the words don't exactly say what they you know, what the intended meaning is behind them. And so we're going to break that down a little bit. But before we get into that and before we meet our guest today, I wonder if you could, Barbara, maybe also just talk a little bit about the context of it. You know, what this executive order is coming at a time when, you know, the country is going through a a racial reawakening. You know, we're talking about issues of race again in a way that we weren't before. I wonder if you could just put that into some perspective. Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, you know, now more than ever, people are much more um, open and willing and interested in being engaged about race and how, you know, they can be allies and, and what they can do and what's missing. And, you know, why is, why is the racial strife that's happening in our nation happening and how can they be positive contributors to the change that we need? Um, and so I would say that from a racial justice perspective, there are way more allies out there who 
want to be part of the solution and are asking for more education and more information. And so, you know, the timing is terrible because now we have to say, no, we can't give that to you. Um, so I think that that's the timing is certainly critical. We're also, you know, what, three, two, four weeks away from an election, um, which has definitely uh created some of the racial issues in our country right now. And, um, you know, there was just a move yesterday to end the census count. So again, more um, because many of these, um, what are considered political issues have a much more negative impact on brown and black communities in America. And, you know, those marginalized communities of people of color. The one word you didn't use to describe this executive order is coincidental, and I, I don't think it's that at all. And we can get into, you know, what are the motivations and what's behind it. Uh, before we get too much further down the road, though, let's bring in our guest. Uh, today we're talking with uh, Mel Stephen Kosnick, manager of the YWCA Center for Race and Gender Equity. I assume the two of you must know each other a little bit. Is that a little bit. Safe <laughs> assumption? Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mel, what, do you, what exactly do you do with the Y, and how does it... Uh, you know, how does that go along with what uh, Barbara does at the Y? So Barbara's our senior director. And for 18 years, I've worked um, with various titles. I'm currently a program manager. And I work at the center and work with the YW to develop educational events, trainings, education, outreach, voter engagement. Our mission is to eliminate racism and empower women. Your longtime listeners might know that already but we're constantly trying to break those very large goals down into smaller events where we can engage people. One, teach them the facts. Um, despite having had an African-American presidency, no, racism hasn't gone away. People used to say that to me during President Obama's administration. Um, and we work to give people a way to contribute towards the elimination of racism and the advancement of women's equality. And we try to do that in ways that meet people's needs and that feel accomplishable. So you guys just didn't in 2008, just like close up your tent and be like, oh, racism is done with, we're over. We elected a black president. Let's move on. We've come up with something else for the Y to do. No, that didn't. We did not all retire to uh, tropical islands. (laughs) (laughs) And of course we've had a surge in what I would call the need for racial diversity education and um, workshops and discussions on what are microaggressions, um, how are people a part of the system, whether they're conscious of it or not. And so uh, I feel like there's an even bigger need for our work in current time. So what was your response then whenever you saw the president's executive order and when you read through it and got into the details of it? I like to use the phrase unsurprised, but continuously disappointed when it comes to things like this executive order. I was not surprised to see that he used the word un-American. Un-American is a propaganda term that is, I believe, thrown out anytime the predominantly white, predominantly male and very wealthy status quo in the United States is challenged. And as Barbara said, we're exploring the ways that it might limit organizations and individuals' opportunities to engage and learn. Uh, Many people are not restricted by federal dollars, and so we can continue to do our education and outreach, but it 
made me even more committed to filling the need. You use the phrase awakening. A lot of friends and family have reached out to me since the George Floyd murder and asked, what should I be reading? I've realized that I always thought I knew enough, but I think I need to know more. And so I'm finding that people want to learn the truth about this, the current situation and the American history that's led up to it and how they can take an active part in dismantling institutional racism and violence. Yeah, Barbara got me to read uh, White Fragility uh, earlier in the, the, back in the early spring, that was uh, Robin D'Angelo, who was, uh, she ended up, she was supposed to go to Pittsburgh and she ended up just doing a virtual talk. And then uh, I ended up, I, on my own read, uh, cast the the new book by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, and both of those were, you know, I think for a lot of white people, like you're saying, Mel, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, you know, go through and kind of expand our horizons. Barbara, do you think that this executive order then is timed to to kind of squelch that, to get people to stop having those conversations and, and stop asking questions, or in particular having white people asking those questions? Um, so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm always erring on the side of positive. So for me, I don't feel that people who are, um, you know, wanting to learn and eager to have those conversations are going to just stop because there's an executive order. I think that those people who, you know, hang on the fringes and are, 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 are always ready for a fight will be able to use this executive order as a, um, you know, as a defensive uh, tactic. I would also add that, you know, uh, typically when I do a racial justice workshop, there's, you know, maybe 30 people in the room when before COVID times. And often they were mandatory. So, you know, often there'd be like one or two people at the back of the room who just didn't participate, didn't say anything, just refused to do anything. And those would be the people who would use the executive order to like tattle that, you know, we're learning about racial justice at at my place of work. And this executive order says you're not supposed to do that. So, So I think that more people are, so I say, I would say less people are concerned about the executive order in terms of, um, not, you know, thinking that finally this will solve all of our problems because we don't want that to happen. I think more people still want it to happen and more people are probably just as uh, discouraged and, um, you know, concerned about the language that's in it as Mel and I. Well, could you, I wonder, you know, either one of you, Mel or Barbara, talk a little bit about what diversity training is and whenever you go out and you provide this kind of training, what, what exactly are you doing and what is the process like? Yeah. I'll start, Mel. Yeah. Do we want to differentiate between anti-racism training and diversity training? Yeah. So um, we have been, since our mission is eliminating racism, we primarily focus on the the concept of race um, as one of the many marginalized pieces that fall under the diversity umbrella. And so, you know, a typical racial justice education experience would be that a person would come in, they would, um, you know, we try to make sure that people feel comfortable in the space. So, you know, learning a little bit about us as facilitators, who we are, what our background is, um, not only comfortable in the space, but feeling like, you know, the people who are sharing, facilitating are legit. Um, And then there there would be a component of learning. So it might be a piece on learning the historical trajectory of racism. You know, some of the things that we talked about earlier related to slavery and some of the stuff that is in um, Isabel Wilkerson's book. And then we usually try to make sure that there's lots of opportunities for people to engage 
share stories, tell their experiences, ask questions. So uh, the hope is that it's a very engaging experience and that people are learning. Adult learners learn better from each other than they learn from some talking head at the at the head of the room. And so we try to make sure that our trainings follow good adult learning best practices and create more opportunities for everyone in the room to talk and share and um, ask questions. And then we usually try to... Um, you know, wrap up a session in a way that helps people to think about what do I do next? What can I do next? As Mel mentioned, maybe it's, you know, do some more reading on your own. Maybe it's, um, you know, joining a nonprofit organization that, you know, where people look different than you. But we try to give people positive ways to make a difference and to, and to move into a better space themselves so that they feel like not only that they learn something from the experience, but they can, they can take that to the next step. <laughs> do you want to add, Mel? Yes, I think a lot of what we try to do is to show people that it's not just about what you know, it's about what you don't know or that you don't think of. And so we are all a product of our experiences and many nonprofits and corporations are predominantly run by white folks. And if you don't think to be inclusive, if you don't think to be diverse, if you don't think about what can and can't be experienced as racism, then you're not comprehensively thinking about it. And we try to let people know that if you're just doing the same old thing that you've been doing all the time, you're probably not being as inclusive as you can. And so it's interesting that so much of the language in the executive order talks about fear and guilt and things like that. That's not what true anti-racism education or diversity training is about. It's about helping people find resources and think outside of their own little box. I'm glad you brought up the language of the executive order. So because I think it, it's it's written almost in a doublespeak sort of way. The other things that are, are said in there in a way that on first blush, you're sort of like, well, why would anyone disagree with this? But then it requires a little bit further thinking and digging into uh, to really understand what they're trying to say. So some of the things that they bring up in the executive order uh, that the president brings up in the executive order is, uh, you know, this idea of divisive concepts the, that that a divisive concept might be that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. You know, I think people would look at that and be like, okay, you know, why would we ever say that one race or sex is uh, superior to another? Um, and then in this, the very next part of it, number two in that same section is the this concept that uh, anytime you say the United States is fundamentally fundamentally racist or sexist. So how would those two things, you know, how, you know, is that something that you say, first of all, in anti-racism or diversity training? And then why is that a a concept that, you know, some might consider to be uh, divisive as the president does? So I think it's interesting. I have been involved in his education since the early 1990s when I was in college learning to be a teacher. And no class I have ever taken as a student, no class I have ever taught as an instructor or facilitator, no diversity training I've ever been in or presented has ever tried to present that one race is in, is superior to another. So I find that very interesting. And then I believe if we look at the facts, who's running the institutions in our country, who has been running them since it's the country's inception, it is racist. 
if you look at a predominantly white Congress, how can we not think that it's going to benefit others and not benefit some? And racism doesn't mean that you're walking around with swastikas tattooed all over you or you're going on night rides in your pointy white hood. It means that you're not conclusively thinking about the needs of everybody and the inequity that happens in places like education, employment, housing, the justice system. Yeah, I think that's a big distinction. Uh, and maybe, Barbara, you can follow up on that. This, you know, this idea for a lot of white people, they, they look at it and say, well, if, if I'm not wearing a Klan hat hood or I'm not uh, doing a Nazi salute, I'm not racist. I, you know, I, I, I treat everybody the same and, uh, you know, I, I don't even think about race. But then what you and I have tried to talk about on this show are those inherent moments when you, you realize that, uh, oh, I am making a decision based on somebody's skin color or, you know, the, the spelling of their name or, or something that gives you an indication of their race or their ethnicity. And that those are the things that we're trying to address and that people were trying to address before this executive order. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think Mel's like right on target in terms of um, language. And we intentionally um, look at our workshops and make sure that we are not calling people names, accusing people of being something anyway, that it's not, it, it is not a, a workshop that airs toward, you know, people to feel defensive or people to feel guilt or people to feel any kind of way. It's really uplifting and uplifting from an educational perspective. So like I even try not to use the word privilege, which comes out of the, um, you know, is one of the words that shows up in the executive order, because in my experience doing workshops, when I use the word privilege, people think of it uh, differently. So people might think, instead of the word privilege, which in the way that usually racial justice trainers are thinking about it, it's that system of advantage. But oftentimes people hear the word privilege and say, you're saying that I'm more privileged than you, privilege with an ED at the end of it. And so rather than get in all those distinguishing, you know, uh, uh, things about one word, it's just easier to think of another way to say it so that people understand. And so when you talk about systems of advantage, that doesn't polarize people in a workshop. It may, when you, when you talk about it and then you give examples, people say, oh yeah, I get that. But when you talk about privilege, you start really putting people at a defensive and polarize the group immediately. And so we are very intentional about making sure that we are not creating um, situations where people believe that they're going to enter a space and be attacked and feel negative. We don't do that at all in any way. And, you know, we do evaluations, we ask people their opinions, we ask people how they feel, um, and then we use that information each and every time to influence what changes or additions we make to the next um, and educational opportunity that we provide. It's interesting you bring up that issue of putting people on the defensive because we did a media project here back uh, right before the pandemic in uh, maybe January or February, where we had a group of journalists together, local Pittsburgh journalists, talking about stories that aren't getting enough coverage. And one of the, the ideas was, should we do a series of stories about is Pittsburgh a racist city? And several of the white journalists were like, yes, this is this would be a great story topic. And several of the black journalists jumped up and they were the most vocal about it saying, 
no, no, we can't go in saying is Pittsburgh racist because whenever we use that word racist, it automatically puts people on the defensive and then, and white people just want to walk away and not talk at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, you know, we know that language matters. And um, so I'm grateful to have Mel as my colleague because um, you know, I often am very passionate about how, how I think as a, brown person. And sometimes, you know, there are things that Mel will say, "Hmm, everybody doesn't think like that. (laughs) I'll be like, oh. (laughs) So I I also think that in in opportunities that are successful, oftentimes are also those that have facilitators who represent two different races, which is why, again, when Mel and I do workshops together, it really really creates a stronger dynamic of cohesiveness before anybody talks versus if I just go in the room, um, if there, if it's a room where mostly white people are, there's going to be this automatic defensiveness at like, oh, what is she going to do and what is she going to say? And so having, you know, racially mixed facilitators creates a stronger positive dynamic in many racial justice education spaces. Yeah, Mel, what do you think about that? How do, do people treat you differently when they walk in and it's a, it's a white person talking about these issues rather than a, a black person? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, I always like to tell this story. I used to work with a, a Japanese-American coworker and we would co-facilitate. And this is a good example of what I would call a microaggression. So we would go in and we would talk to people and they would ask, they would ask my colleague, oh, where are you from? They never asked me where I was from or they rarely did. And she would say, oh, I'm from um, Edgewood. And then they would say, no, where are you really from? Because to them, she didn't look like she was from Edgewood. Um, And I never got asked that question in the same way. And so they perceived us differently as, um, I don't know if I looked more like a Pittsburgher or more American. I think sometimes it gives me an advantage to talk to people because I can share my own experience with what it means to grow up as a white person in America and to develop an anti-racist consciousness. Um, It also sometimes works against me. I once went to do a diversity training where almost everyone in the room was a person of color and uh, many of them identified um, LGBTQI, some were HIV positive, and they worked with a lot of clients that were HIV positive and I'm sure were very diverse. And someone asked me, why does every diversity training I've ever been, it's been led by a white woman. Um, And so we had to have an honest conversation about what that meant. And I could understand their, their perspective because the number one beneficiary of affirmative action over the years, studies have shown have been white women. And so everybody perceives race and topics like privilege and racism differently. And I think if you've had painful experiences with things, it impacts the way you can open up for conversations and trust people. I think there's been a burden and expectation by marginalized groups, whether it's based on race or sexual orientation, to share their pain and why these things are negative and hurtful. And I am not a proponent of that. I feel like if you want to learn about marginalized experiences, you need to find first person resources and read them or watch documentary films and not interrogate your coworkers and colleagues about what it means to be black in America or Arab in America. 
Do you, Barbara and I have talked about this before, and and it was validated by Isabel Wilkerson's book uh, Cast, where th- this issue that racism is really a, a white problem, right? This is not we we always ask black people to sort of solve the problem of racism when it's really a, a white issue, and I just wonder, Mel, sometimes if you think it would be you know, what would it be like or how is it like whenever you walk into a room and it's only white people? Is it a different experience when you're talking about racism in a room of only white people versus a, a room with uh, a mixed group of people? I think white people, white folks feel more comfortable asking controversial questions mm-hmm. when there is a white facilitator in the room only or a, a teacher. Um, it's interesting um, sometimes I feel like a spy because people, if you don't know what I do, um, based on where I live, which is the North Hills, um, based on my educational level, you might just suppose, I guess, political perspectives on my behalf. Um, and I've had people make really negative comments to me thinking that I'm going to agree with them. And when they find out how I feel personally um, about racism and, and discrimination and what I do for a living, it's my day job, but I sought it out because of how I feel personally, they're often surprised. And I know they wouldn't say those things to a person of color or if Barbara and I were in the room together. So I do think it makes them bolder in expressing what could be interpreted as racist perspectives or perspectives that are biased and have not been exposed to maybe a more diverse uh, understanding of the facts. If it gives them room to ask questions, maybe that's not a terrible thing. But I think, you know, as white people, we see this all the time, right? That the conversation shifts whenever it's just white people in the room versus whenever there's, you know, even one person of color in the room. And I say person of color because it could be a a Latino person or a a Latinx or or a black person or Asian. But, you know, it, it changes the dynamic, doesn't it? And I don't know, Barbara, if you agree, I think there are definite positives to having conversations where, um, you know, there are discussions that um, black folks need to have among themselves. And there are folks that women need to have or discussions that women need to have among themselves. So I feel like um, homogeneous groups can be very beneficial. And Andy, you bring up a good point. If we can never ask questions and we're never going to have conversations, I feel like the way questions get asked sometimes though can be insensitive. Um, and so, yeah, I do try to fill in that, that need to maybe someone can learn from my own experience of growing up in a predominantly white community that was, uh, next to a predominantly black community. You know, I grew up in segregation essentially, even though it was in my lifetime illegal. Was that here in Pittsburgh or somewhere else? I grew up in Beaver County. I grew up in Hopewell Township, if you're familiar with that. Um, It's got its own high school, and it's right next to Aliquippa, which is its own city, I guess you would call it. And it was a predominantly Black high school. Um, I think it's even more so now. And when you met someone from Aliquippa that was white, you knew immediately what you would, you know, assume what neighborhood they lived in, because in the 80s and 90s, those neighborhoods were still very segregated. Were you aware of that dynamic growing up? And was it, it was something that was just sort of ingrained in the community? I did notice. I noticed that when we as a family or with my mom went out to shop in the greater community, the, you know, folks at the Giant Eagle, folks at the Hills department store, if you remember that, if you're a Pittsburgher, they were, you know, I saw black folks and I saw white folk. Uh, wasn't a, weren't a lot of Latinx or a lot of Asian folks in, in the community I grew up in. 
Um, but I definitely saw them when I went to high school or even elementary school that, you know, the teachers were predominantly white. Most of my classmates were white. And I don't know that I understood it at the time. It was more of a visual um, realization. And then as I got older and experienced sexism, um, that certainly opened my eyes to the racism that was also um, happening in my community, not directed at me, but learning more about the historical context of redlining, which is where blacks or people of color aren't allowed to buy in certain neighborhoods, segregation, things like that. Economics, where people worked, depended on where they could buy a house and that impacted the segregation as well. So it was very visual growing up and then learning about it sort of academically reinforced that. Yeah, I grew up out in uh, Greensburg in Westmoreland County and we didn't even have that sort of the comparison, right? There were so few black people and uh, so few Jewish people, you know, you almost knew like, and it's still true today. Like, you know, somebody says, oh, I, I, you know, I know a Jewish person in Greensburg. I can start going through the list of people and it's usually, you know, that's the person they know. Um, it's just, uh, you know, and I, I think that shapes a lot of what goes on with these discussions, particularly, you know, as we're getting ready for the election and we think about, uh, you know, Pennsylvania and parts of Pennsylvania. I wonder if it's hard for people in places where they don't see a lot of diversity to uh, be empathetic and to have these conversations. Barbara, if you've lived in both, you've lived in really rural places in Pennsylvania and really urban. What's been your experience? Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned that, Andy, because I lived for two years up in central Pennsylvania uh, and I worked at C uh, Susquehanna University in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. And the, you know, the assumption that I had and certainly um, the uh, flavor of feelings that I got before I went there was, oh my goodness, you're going into, you know, the central Pennsylvania and it's going to be really racist. And what I found was not so much that it was really racist, although there's probably pockets of that for sure. But what I found more so in my experience was that there was a lot of curiosity that people weren't able to meet the, you know, what they were curious about because they didn't have any, you know, factual, you know, people to really ask those questions that Mel talked about and to really engage in those conversations that you mentioned. And so when I was there, you know, I was really impressed with the openness of people to have conversations and to ask questions and to, you know, get feedback and to really you know, see themselves as allies because of the inequities that they felt were just not not helpful to anybody. Um, and so, so that was my experience. And uh, so, I think that you have pockets of it, and you have pockets of it everywhere. But I do think mostly people who are in um, rural communities where they don't have exposure to diverse people, they do talk about that. Like, you know, we don't have anybody who of color here. And so, you know, when issues come up around race, they really don't know what to do and they do reach out. So, um, and that, I, I think that the other thing that I would add to that too is Mel mentioned it a little bit. Um, it is important to make sure that um, you, there's a lot of, I, I don't want to yeah, I do. <laughs> There's a lot of bad diversity training that's out there. And so, um, and a lot of um, people who have been empowered to lead diversity and uh, inclusion initiatives because of their position in a workforce. Um, and I don't know who they are, but I have experienced some myself. And so I think that, unfortunately, it gives 
you know, the whole profession a bad rap if you have people who are leading those kinds of workshops in ways that are um, not helpful, um, in ways that, that that they're not really experts in that in that work and that they haven't really studied and learned. Um, you know, Mel and I can talk about how many years, you know, that we have spent studying and reading and learning and taking workshops ourselves to make sure that we are giving every workshop the best that we can give. Whereas some people, you know, get a new job and they're told, oh, you need to run the diversity and inclusion initiative. And maybe they, you know, look it up, Google it, and then they lead one. (laughs) And so, you know, depending on how many people they um, have contact with or engage, they could be giving bad experiences. So I would just say for those listeners that you want to make sure that um, you look at the credentials of the people who are leading your initiatives so that, um, you know, maybe some of them are just very basic, but you want to know what you're getting into and what you're going to be learning from that. And people's credentials will be able to give you a good sense of where that workshop might go. This one other part of the executive order that I, I wanted to take a moment to talk about is this idea that uh, anti-bias training or anti-racism training can, sh- I guess, according to the executive order, should never mention anything where someone by virtue of uh, his or her race or sex, and I'm quoting here, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. So this idea that we should never say that, uh, you know, white people bear some sort of responsible for slavery because, you know, none of us have lived at a time when there was slaveholding. Can you guys talk about that? And maybe Mel, can you address how uh, how that may come up during diversity training and, you know, what the president's trying to get at with this executive order? Sure. Um, I think that people have sat through bad trainings or they've had conversations where they have felt guilty or they have felt blamed. Um, that does happen. Um, but I like to tell people that unless you've invented a time machine, we we can't go back and change the past. Certainly, if you're born in the 21st century, you obviously you know didn't own a plantation in antebellum Mississippi. And so what we need to concentrate on is learning the past in a factual way, making sure you understand accurate American history and not the sort of glamorized, um, wrapped in red, white, and blue kind of history that often gets presented, not just through some not great history classes, but pop culture, movies. What messages are we getting through those other ways? You know, pundits, the news, um, and making it about a current conversation. What can you do now? Um, it's You need to do more than just not be racist. Um, and that's Ibram Kendi's, one of Ibram Kendi's big sort of goals in, in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, is that you need to be strategic about moving forward in doing something to disrupt the system. And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, you don't necessarily have to be president of the United States. You don't have to, um, you know, lead a protest march if you're not comfortable doing that, but you do need to take some kind of involvement and don't get, I don't want to say don't get bogged down by the past because that can be used as an excuse, but if you're going to be so paralyzed by guilt or caught up in that debate, right, I see a lot of debate going back and forth about that, and that's time that could be spent working together to improve the the current situation and what's going to happen in the future. 
I think that's such a great point, Mel, especially for white people, that uh, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not racist. You actually need to be proactive. You need to do things that make you inclusive, that you need to be deliberate in thinking about what you're doing to be inclusive and and fair and equitable to the people around you. So I think that's a that's a really interesting point. I would also add to that, um, you know, again, I would agree with definitely what Mel said and and also reiterate the fact that we would not say that at a at a workshop at all, that you know, that you're this way because of blah, 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 blah. But it also is helpful for people to really put some context to that. And so like, if you think about maybe your great, great grandparent was uh, a recipient of the, um, I think it was in the sixties, the federal, um, federal aid that was available for vets to, to buy their first home loans that were available. 98% of that, I think it was like, I don't know, 200 million or billion dollars. 98% of that money went to white vets. So 2% went to black vets. So you say, well, that's not me, but let's think like if you, if you, let's talk about you and I, Andy. So let's say your great, great, great grandfather got that money and my great, great grandfather did not. And then you pop forward to the historical trajectory of we're here today. And because of that wealth that your great, great, great grandfather had that passed along generations and generations, maybe you have a really nice home and I'm still living in an apartment because I didn't have that. So it's really looking at that inequity from the perspective of history and then thinking like Mel said, where do we go from here, right? So if that was the case, I would hope that you would feel like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And let's, you know, I wanna work on this. And again, it's about everybody feeling that, that there's something that they can do and that there's something that they can say pretty much at every point in their life in every experience that they have that can make a difference in one way or another posit to positively influence um, the elimination of racism to some degree. We're not going to, you know, one person can't do it all. <laughs> one organization can't do it all, but everybody taking their, you know, capacity to do something and say something is what is going to help make a difference. Well, and I, and I think, you know, and we, you talked about great, great grandparents, but I think it's important to remember this is not ancient history that we're talking about. Right. You, you could have easily said grandparents or parents. Grandparents? Okay. Right? I'm terrible at math, Andy. Thank no, you. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, these are, I mean, you know, I, I always like to do it in terms of Steelers, right? Because the, you know, of Pittsburgh and where we are and that it was just 10 years before the first Steelers Super Bowl victory that uh, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And so that, you know, at oh, that wow. point, people were in the, you know, black people were still in the back of the bus uh, before that. And yeah. so, you know, this is not, this is not some foreign concept that was like, you know, I mean, we can talk about slavery and say, well, that was, that was a long time ago, although it really wasn't that long ago. That's when we start getting into the great greats, but uh, you know, but these, you know, Jim Crow laws, certainly, you know, we're in the times of our, our parents and grandparents. Right. I think even today, um, one of the things I appreciate about Barbara and I working together is that we can have um, honest, frank conversations about how, our experience as a black woman and how our experience as a white woman or my and hers experiences differ. We've talked about being pulled over by the police and what were our different feelings and experiences. We've talked about grocery shopping <laughs> and how when I shop at grocery stores and, you know, the not very diverse community where I live, there are no police officers and there, there you know, there's a police officer at her grocery store all the time. And so 
I feel like there's a fine line between talking about the reality that racism currently impacts our quality of life, our safety levels, our income and education opportunities um, without sort of falling into that pit of whose fault is it? And historically, do I bear the guilt for that? Um, because I don't want to make people feel so good that they think, well, that's just the way it is and I'm not responsible for it. So I don't have to bear any action in changing it. So I feel like that's a big part of education and, and diversity training is how can we have those conversations in ways that are um, empowering and also acknowledge the physical and emotional trauma that prejudice causes, but also moving forward to make a commitment to say, I am going to um, run for office or vote for, for people who will change things. And that, that really brings us back around to the beginning, right, Barbara? I mean, that's why we're here having this conversation uh, with the podcast yeah. Among Neighbors. You know, We felt like people weren't having those conversations. So uh, thanks for, for highlighting that, Mel. We, as with so many of our topics, I feel like we could keep going on all day here, Barbara, but uh, we probably need to, to bring it around. What do you think? Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Among Neighbors, a podcast on race, power, and privilege. This is a joint project with the Point Park Center for Media Innovation and the YWCA of Greater Pittsburgh. The podcast, for the first time ever, is produced by Olivia Valio. Thanks for listening.